Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And uh, that email is in the description section here below. And of course, I also take questions that are left in the comment section of my Q&A videos. So if you have questions for me, you can leave them there and I will get them into my queue. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Um, welcome. Uh, thank you for welcoming me back into your home. This week, we did a podcast, and this was a viewer request to uh, go deep dive on Scientology's History of Man and the mythology uh, around that book and around the, um, the cosmology of Scientology. So we had a chance to go into some detail on that, so I hope you will check that out. And I also did, I posted midweek uh, uh, this three-hour nonsense sort of chat that I had with a practicing Mormon, and this was hosted by my friend Jonathan Streeter, who was an ex-Mormon on his channel. Uh, his channel is called Thinker of Thoughts and Stuff, and um, these midnight Mormon show people uh, decided to go check out Scientology, and they were pretty uh, hyped about it and pretty gushing about it, and so I decided that I would, um, Jonathan asked me to respond to this video, then we ended up having one of them come on and talk live, and it ended up being this long three-hour, you know, sort of gab fest. So anyway, you guys can check that out as well if you have not seen or heard of that. That was posted this week on my channel. Uh, okay, so let's get on with your questions. Alex Manikis, I do a bit of work for the public sector here in Germany. Before I'm allowed to start the job, in many cases, I am asked to sign a paper saying that I, quote, resent the methods and techniques of L. Ron Hubbard and do not use them in my teaching. It does not use the word Scientology. I guess they word it that way to also include all the front groups with different names that endorse Hubbard's methods. It was actually that document that led me into researching the subject, since how would I know whether I am using any methods similar to what Hubbard used? I did not know what he was about, despite a brief and weird encounter with the organization when I was 17. Now I wonder, what is the use of that document? Would a Hubbard follower just lie and sign it anyway, or is there an ethical obligation to not criticize Hubbard in any way? I use a similar idea when I meet someone who says they came out of Scientology. I say, hail Xenu, to identify myself as a non-Scientologist because I understand that Scientologists are not allowed to mention Xenu. All right, Alex. Well, um, thank you for this question, and it's an interesting one. Germany is an interesting place. I find it somewhat um, disagreeable that you would have to actually sign a document like that in order to get work. Um, but I get it. Okay, so uh, Germany definitely has a thing on L. Ron Hubbard and on Scientology, and, and they should. But as you guys know from my work years ago, I'm not particularly down with banning things or trying to thought police people into compliance. Although, you know, we have to kind of own the fact that not everybody is really up to understanding all the nuances of all the issues that could possibly harm them. And uh, this is why we have public safety and rules and you know all this kind of crap anyway so interesting situation you're presenting here but you're asking me um would scientologists go along with this and uh the answer is 
both yes and no. It is sort of Schrodinger's Scientologist, right, depending on the context. If you had a Scientologist, just some Joe Blow, regular public Scientologist or, you know, regular kind of guy who was just trying to get along in life, needed some work and needed to sign this paper in order to get it, Sure, they'll lie. Of course they will, right? Anybody would. Um, this is this is you know thought policing, and this is an attempt to to do that. And so you know people are gonna uh, by necessity have to push back on that when the circumstances of their lives dictate that they you know have to. On the other hand, uh, most Scientologists would find it rather distasteful and uh, if not outright disgusting and exclusionary. Uh, that they would be treated this way and or people who support Hubbard's methods, even if they're not Scientologists. Like you'll find some people, very, very small number of people, but you'll find some people who will endorse Hubbard's administrative system, the wise consulting thing where they bring these ideas from Hubbard's policies into regular businesses, uh, setting up communication systems and dispatch systems and organizing boards and just, you know, particular ways of running the, the outfit using statistics and stuff like that. You know, it has varying degrees of workability depending on how it's applied, but you can have people who could be doing this and going, yeah, no, I use L. Ron Hubbard stuff. What's the problem? And, you know, in Germany, they're going to be, um, um, discriminated against. And, uh, you know, like I said, I just don't know that that's a really good idea as far as trying to accomplish the goals of what the German government's trying to accomplish. But like I said, I get it. Um, so as far as, um, you know, does a Hubbard follower just lie and sign it anyway? Um, you know, they're not going to want to, uh, if, if given a choice, they would absolutely say absolutely positively not. I'm not doing that. That's crazy. Um, I think a lot of people in that in that position, uh, whether they were Christians or whatever their religious or philosophical leanings might be, if they were, uh, you know, asked to do something like this, then you know they they, they wouldn't necessarily go for it. Um, and of course, the other context you might see here where somebody would very adamantly not be involved in this or not want to do this would be Scientologists who are trying to make a human rights issue out of it or, you know, make some kind of a public uh, nuisance or display about it to sort of highlight, you know, the discriminatory practice. So, um, so I could see that being done and, you know, and, and that happening. Probably we've seen instances of both over the years. I'm not familiar enough with, you know, Scientology in Germany and all the, all the ins and outs of it over the years to know whether anybody's really tried to take this on from, from Scientology's point of view, but I'd be really, 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 really surprised if Scientology had not made formal protests and tried to push back on this legally, I'd be I'd be very surprised by that. Um, just one thing I wanted to comment on also is this business of saying "Hail Zenu" to somebody who comes out of Scientology, or you know, to show your your uh, uh, you know your identify myself as non Scientologist. I, I I really just want to take this opportunity to again say. You know, man, only about 5% of people in Scientology have ever heard the word Xenu. And every single one of them are people who have gone through OT3 or above. And so the vast majority of Scientologists are not going to have a damn clue what you're talking about when you say that. 
um, you know, it's really, I, I think congratulations might be a far better term or word to use in greeting somebody that you found has just come out of Scientology. Uh, you know, a hearty hail, hi, you know, good job. Uh, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. You know, some kind of congratulatory effort will go farther than some snarky little joke that they're not even going to get, right? And they might find even distasteful or offensive. So, um, so I wouldn't do that, just as a point. Uh, you know, because when you're talking to people, I just want to make this point, actually, since we're since I'm going to harp on it for a second. When you're talking to people who have just exited or are leaving uh, or on the fence about a, a, a big thing, you know, something they're really invested in emotionally, financially, um, you know, mentally with their ideas. Um, it's really, really best to um, to not push their buttons. Uh, about their experience, you know. Oh, I'm so glad you finally got out of that bullshit. How could you have fallen for all of that all those years? We were all waiting for you to come to your senses. Oh man, what? And and I know, Alex, you're not doing that. Okay, I know that. I'm exaggerating to make the point that you know it's a it's a little bit of a you know superiority thing I even you know anyway like I said I know Alex you're not doing that I'm just making this other point building on this bit that you did say so anyway guys uh there's my answer Dr. Robert Tobias due to the internet and other resources we are living in a time when it is extremely easy to research the background and criticism of high control groups whether they are cults or multi-level marketing schemes Nevertheless, they seem to proliferate globally. Why is that? Great question. And uh, the answer, unfortunately, is going to require us to look at some, uh, some more harsh truths about people, right? There's pleasant lies and there's harsh truths. And um, this is going to fall on the side of the harsh truths of things, right? Um, first off... There's a number of reasons for this. It's not a single reason, okay? You've got a lot of things going on. First off is access to the information. While it is true that the internet is proliferated farther and wider than, you know, and faster than anything we ever imagined, there are still tons and tons of places in the world where they don't have internet access or full internet access or language access, right? Where us critics of Scientology have been um, pretty uniformly awful at getting our work translated. Certainly, I have been. Um, you know, there's no subtitles or any translations or anything for most of my work. And so if you're, you know, uh, hooking up with Scientology in Taiwan or in Asia, somewhere in you know, Malaysia or India or uh, Nepal or China, you know, you're curious about this, right? In South Korea, let's say, uh, yeah, th there's probably hardly anything there that's anti-Scientology or that's going to give you some kind of word back on that um, in your own language, right? So language barriers are a problem for the, you know, vast majority of the world getting exposed to or learning about the stuff we put out. Because for the most part, by, by far, the, for the most part, the anti-cult or anti-thought reform education and information that's out there is in English. 
right? For the by by the by vast majority of it. So um, so translations efforts are are a thing, okay? Um, but getting but that's that's you know that's kind of like okay that's 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 a problem. Um, you know, having access to the internet's a problem. So, so we could say, you know, that that just getting the information in the first place is not necessarily as sealed a deal as we all like to think it is in our first world, uh, and how easy we have it when it comes to getting this information or or finding it. Uh, that all being said, the much bigger barrier here is us, is people is just humans and the, and the way we respond to things. Um, I will say, I, I've said and will continue to say over and over again that we are emotion-driven creatures. We are not logical or rational creatures by our nature. And so it is not uh, the first place we go when it comes to our decision-making process is what feels good, what feels right. And just take a look I mean, if you really want an example of this, look at that three-hour thing I did this week with Mormon, right? This is a man who who prides himself, this guy uh, that we were talking to, Corden, prided himself on his critical thinking skills and his ability to discern truth through his years of media experience. And this is a man who, who was blatantly lied to, to his face, and was gushing about how wonderful the liars were to him and how great the experience of, of, of meeting Scientologists was. And that's how much critical thinking he was actually able to apply to that situation. His truth meter was, if you're nice to me, you're telling the truth. And if you're mean to me, you're bad, you're a bad person, and I can't believe you. Right, that's how fragile that guy's ego was. But it was fascinating for me to, you know, to deal with that head on. But it's also very illuminating. It's very eye-opening, right? He's not alone. This is not some one-off. There's tons of people out there like that, right? Who's who are ruled, ruled by their feelings and their ego. And this really comes down to the harsh truth I was I was referring to when I was starting answering this question is, is the harsh truth of what's written on this post-it note, right? Which is, these are the emotional needs that we have. There are nine categories of emotional needs that we all must fulfill in our life in order for us to feel like we are accomplishing anything, that we are successful, and that we are happy. In order for us to achieve these, this state of being, this idea that, that we're, we're on the right path, we're doing the right things, we're, we're happy with our lives, we are satisfied emotionally with our lives, in order for that to happen, these needs have to be met. And not anywhere on this list is anything connected with truth. Right? We don't have to live with the truth in order to be happy. We have to have security. We have to have a feeling of autonomy or self-control of our life. We have to feel that we have that there is personal attention paid to us and we are able to pay personal attention to others. There must be emotional connection with other people. We can't just have a meeting of minds with everybody. We need to meet with people emotionally. We need to connect. Um, there has to be a sense of community. We must feel that we are part of something bigger than us in order for us to have that feeling of emotional satisfaction. We have to have a sense of privacy, though. While we need community and sharing, we also need to have 
We need to be able to leave some for ourselves, and we need to have a sense of self that is that is uh, that is good and solid and and separate from everybody else. Um, we have to have also a, a value sense of to ourself, an ego, right? A sense of self that we are important, that we matter, that 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 somehow we are significant. Um, we have to have a sense of achievement in our life. Somehow, some way, we need to be making things happen that we feel we need to be making happen. This doesn't have to be externally dictated to us, although it often is at our jobs. But our sense of achievement comes from within us. And we have to do things or we will strive very hard to do things to give ourselves that feeling of achievement or accomplishment. And finally, we have to have some sense of meaning in our life. All of this has to mean something. Now, what that meaning could be is going to be very individual for each person, but there has to be a meaning of some kind. Again, it doesn't have to be metaphysical. It doesn't have to be spiritual. Uh, I, I know a whole lot of atheists who have no spiritual meaning in their life whatsoever, but they have a very strong moral sense or ethical sense, and they live very much on the ethical point. And they feel that that is what gives them meaning, is being a good person without God. Uh, that's not me, by the way, but that is a lot of atheists and stuff that I that I interact with. Um, so there is still meaning possible, even if what gives you meaning, and the chances are, if you're watching this, uh, that you have some religious feelings or sentiments or beliefs and uh, ideas, and those are a great part of what give you meaning. But I just want to point out, you don't have to have religion to have that sense of meaning, right? For people, they can have, they can draw or derive meaning from other places. All of these things, these categories of emotional needs are what drive our behavior. I've been studying, you know, people and cults and what get people get involved in cults, why they stay in cults, why they stay in bad relationships, why they get hooked into them in the first place. I've been studying this stuff for years now, right? And and the and the, the 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 university program just really laid it in hard that it's very very clear that we are not logical creatures driven by an intense need to to be aligned with the truth. That is not what drives people's decisions. These things are. And so as long as a person is doing things and moving in a direction where they are feeling these emotional needs met or they're getting involved in situations where they feel these things are going to be met, if they keep plugging away, if they keep going, I'm going to have the satisfaction, I'm going to have the meaning, I'm going to have the community, right? My ego will be boosted. I mean, that's what love bombing is all about is, is feeding that. Just as an example, right? All the tools of manipulation, all the things that we talk about that are utilized by cult leaders are not logic traps. They're emotion-based traps. They're things that feed your emotional needs far more than they feel than they feed your intellectual needs. And this is what drives behavior. This is the harsh truth and the harsh reality of human beings. And and you just have to go watch people and watch how they act how they make decisions, right? That's what convinces you of the reality of what I'm talking about, right? Because for a very, very, very long time, I, I was of the mind um, that, you know, if we could just get critical thinking taught well enough in schools, we will solve this problem. And we will not. We will not. 
What we will do by teaching the discipline of critical thinking is we will help mitigate the unintended consequences of us trying to so desperately to fulfill our emotional needs. We can mitigate it, but we're not going to get rid of it because we're never going to not have these emotional needs. And if you reframe how you look at people against this framework rather than against a Mr. Spock logic framework, then people are going to start making a lot more sense to you. And this is, this is why I'm talking about this today and why I thought this was a great question to take this up, is we do see, see, there is a thing about truth. People, the, the thing about truth is it's true. So <laughs> it's how things really are. So because our emotional needs can be such strong motivators or drivers for us, we can go into, we can easily, easily go into states of denial about the truth of things. And, and so, no, that's not true. No, that I don't have to do that. No, I don't need that. No, you know, that's not, that's not the case at all. Well, if you're talking about something that's life or death or very, very important and there's, and there's true things being denied, and people are acting only on their emotions for, for how they want to deal with something. And let's talk, for example, about anti-vaxxers, right? This is a very emotion-based topic. Uh, you will find lots and lots of facts being thrown around, but the motivations for being against vaccines are almost all uniformly based in emotion. Um you can deny the veracity or the truth or the efficacy of vaccines all the way up until you're dead. But then you're dead, right? You get a disease, you get a virus, whatever, COVID, and you die. And then your denial really doesn't matter anymore because you're not around anymore. So so, it, so my point, I guess, what I'm trying to make here kind of clumsily is it, to the degree you're not aligning your emotional needs with, with truth, your life is going to be very, very complicated and difficult. It's going to get worse and more complicated, more difficult, the more you're trying to deny the truth of a thing. Scientologists, let's talk about Scientologists. Scientologists' lives, public Scientologists, staff members, Sea Org members, they are endlessly complicated lives. They are enmeshed in complexities. They have to think their way through labyrinths of illogic in order for Scientology to continue to make sense to them. They have to deny tons and tons of true things in order to maintain their beliefs. And that kind of thing has consequences too. It, ha it wears on a person. It, it hurts them. It makes their life complicated. They have to drive all the way around the block to avoid this piece of truth where if they could just face that truth, they'd have a direct shot, right? It's like that kind of thing. So, so we want things to be aligned with the truth, with the reality of things, with facts and reason and evidence. And this is why these are helpful tools for us is because they make our lives infinitely simpler and infinitely less complicated for the most part. 
Sure, if you dive into the the specifics of truths of and theories of quantum mechanics or something, you're going to have some complex thinking on your mind. I'm not trying to say it's all simple, Simon. Truths can be complicated too. But how many of us on our day-to-day existence really are depending on the principles of quantum mechanics to figure out our lives? You know, not, none of us, right? So, you know, so so for the most part, the simple truths of life um, are the things that make life rather navigable and, and easier to do, right? So, for example, right, it's a it's a truth that. Uh, that it might be a pretty good idea to not run around telling lies all the time because it's going to make your life very, very complicated, right? So, so basically, if you don't do that, if you can sort of, you know, try to seek to live with the truth and tell the truth and and align yourself with the truth, you're going to have an easier time of it. Uh, that's how I see the world, at least. Uh, which is why I'd rather live with an uncomfortable truth than with a pleasing lie, because lies require denial. Lies require you to, you know, have to go all the way around the block to, to keep the thinking in place, you know, to keep it going. But the, this is outweighed frequently, this, this desire to live with the truth and, and believe true things and align yourself with the truth. This is often, you know, hindered by these emotional needs where I need to be right. I need to, be, I need to feel secure. I need to feel safe. Even if it's based on lies, I still feel safe, so therefore my life is okay. You see what I mean? Like the contradictory nature of this. I hope I'm, I hope I'm not going too, too weird with this, but I, I, I just wanted to sort of point out this, this business of emotional needs is what drives us. And if you're wondering, well, why do cults still flourish, as you asked here, okay, why do marketing level, multi-level marketing schemes, why do they still go? Because people have to feel that there is a get-rich-quick scheme that they can take advantage of. Look at all these other people taking advantage. Look at all these other people who are making all this money. I should be able to as well, right? Our sense of fairness, our sense of justice is assaulted by the inequities of our economics and our class system. And so people feel this like, wow, they got theirs, I should get mine. Well, that... That's a, that's a pretty universal emotional truth, right? And so people will act on that truth. And they will think and invest in a multi-level marketing scheme based on that emotional truth. Rather than look at the harsher truth, the uncomfortable truth, that MLM schemes are nothing but disastrous, culty little schemes, right? They're never gonna, you're never going to get rich on that crap. You're just going to ruin your life. But people feel so desperate, they feel so needful, they feel so uh, insecure, they feel so bottom of the rung, that they got to do something, they got to change something, this looks good, this sounds good, these people look happy, I'll take this, right? And it's, and it's feeding those emotional needs. All right. So I think I've beat that point into the ground, but I really wanted to give some examples and kind of show where I was coming from on that. I hope all this makes sense and answers your question, Robert. Um, it's, it's kind of sucky. You know, I really wish people weren't so human, but we are. And that's part of the human condition is to be a uh, gullible, insecure, unsure, uncertain person. That's who, that's kind of at, at the bottom of the well. That's kind of who all of us are. And it's what it is to be human. 
right? And we try so hard to overcome that. Uh, and that's, 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 that's life. <laughs> okay, there you go. Chet Conway. Scientology is full of Hubbard's ideas, but also his notions and views of what certain people are like infuses his work to create a worldview. The black and white stereotypes and caricatures he paints would, I imagine, be potentially damaging to a person's welfare. Some examples that come to mind are labeling all journalists as merchants of chaos or stating that all antisocial personalities are criminals and anti-scientologists too. Then he referred to all of humanity as wogs or raw meat who must be redeemed or conquered as savages by a benign Scientology government. On top of that, we have his thought-stopping statements about homosexuality, medicine, psychiatry, and a host of other things. What were some other Scientology perspectives you encountered? L. Ron Hubbard and his work Scientology and the community or culture of Scientology is built on us versus them. And that us versus them is very strong. And, and what you've laid out here in this question are some examples of that, and I'll give you some others. Um, but I really wanted to emphasize this us versus them point because it's very purposeful. It's by design. And while you listed a couple of the biggest ones, the fact is that eventually you get into a mindset, and it doesn't actually take that long to get there. When you get into Scientology, you very quickly get into a mindset where just because you're a Scientologist, you are inherently superior to everybody who is not. Everybody. So, so the us versus them, that black and white kind of thinking, is inculcated, it's indoctrinated, it's taught to Scientologists by these kinds of things. It starts with things that, you know, generally speaking, lots and lots and lots of people could agree with. Like, you know, psychiatric electric shocks are disturbing to watch. Psychiatric lobotomies are, are certainly disturbing and result in people who don't appear to be getting along better in life to say the least, right, hacking out people, parts of people's brains, you know, uh, kind of just because you think you should, generally not a very good idea, right? And a lot of people can get on board with that. And that's how Hubbard would introduce his anti-psychiatry diatribe, would right, be the most brutal, awful, extreme methods of psychiatry. And let's take that and then let's vilify the hell out of the entire field and then say, actually, the real solution here is just to eradicate it utterly. Just get rid of it. No more psychs. And all the psychs, of course, are should be you know prosecuted as war criminals. That's where you end up. You don't start there on day one, but that's where you end up with psychiatry. Uh, similarly with journalists and the media, right? Because they're all just a bunch of liar McLean faces, right? Because they have nothing good to say about Scientology. We all know as Scientologists that there is nothing better or more ethical or pure or wonderful for the world than Scientology. So all these journalists who have nothing good to say about it clearly are missing the boat. Well, not only are they missing the boat, actually they're probably being paid to say these things, you know, and then we get to the big pharma level and how anything having to do with pharmacopoeia or, or the pharmacology industry is inherently evil and must be destroyed because look at all these kids who are on psych drugs and look at all these mass shootings that are caused by all these kids on psych drugs. So, you know, therefore dot, 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 right? We can extend that us versus them black and white 
analogy out. And, and that's a whole nother way that Scientologists cut off their access and willingness to communicate with the outside world because the outside world is bad and evil and dangerous. And really, at the end of the day, those people need to get on board Scientology or they need to be destroyed. That's kind of where it ends up going. And I believe me, I, I used to think that way. Uh, and I knew a lot of other Scientologists who did too. I mean, we would talk about it, not in terms of the violence. We didn't want to kill everybody. It wasn't that. It's that we wanted everybody on board, but we really knew that they were wogs. They were raw meat. They were not Scientologists. They couldn't be trusted. They were aberrated. They didn't even know how aberrated they were. Aberration in Scientology is a word for they were fucked up, right? They couldn't think straight. Literally, that's what aberrated means in Scientology is you cannot think in straight lines. So um, so we had a very low opinion of people who were not in Scientology. And this even extended to emotions and our emotional state. We were Scientologists. We were uptone. We were happy. We were positive. We were creative. We were uh, constructive because we were in these higher states of emotion. The rest of the world was delusionary. They were in lower negative tone levels. They were so bad off. All those people out there who aren't in Scientology are so bad off, they don't and can't even know how fucked up they are. Right? They're that fucked up. I used to say that that part out loud. And, uh, and I would get agreement from other Scientologists about that. So, um, and of course, I had other Scientologists say things like that to me. So, so this wasn't just what was going on in my head. This was going on in the whole culture, both at the Sea Org level, staff level, and even at the public level. You know, there was one time I was on Hollywood Boulevard with a Scientology friend of mine, and it was a Friday night. Everybody was out partying, you know, hanging out, doing what they were doing. And he looked around and he was like, you know, we are the most sane rational, uptone people probably within 10 city blocks right now. You know, just just ego puffery, just pure ego. We're better than everybody here because look at how much we know and look at our higher increased emotional state of awareness and ability, right? This is the kind of thing that Scientologists pump themselves up on all day long. And if you're ever wondering where all that arrogance and narcissism and, and ego comes from, look at L. Ron Hubbard, man. He's passing it on to his followers as far as that goes. And that's the empowering thing about Scientology. When you're in it, you feel that this is empowering to you. You're not aware of the fact that you're acting like an asshole now. You, you really don't. You really don't think that's what you're doing. Right, you really think you have achieved this this heightened state where you're breathing rarefied air and you're in this position of ultimate help and ultimate superiority over everybody else. But the last thing you ever tell yourself is, "Well, I'm being arrogant and egotistical. I'm being a little full of myself." Oh no, you are absolutely positive that you're the most humble being in the universe. <laughs> It's really quite something. I mean, you know, having memories of this and, and looking back at my time in Scientology and the way that I used to think compared to how I think now, I just couldn't be more different. It just really couldn't. Um, but you just don't have any idea. So, so those are some of the other 
Scientology perspectives that I encountered, right? And uh, and yeah, there you go. Hope that hope that answered. Judith M. Was L. Ron Hubbard a racist? On its face, Scientology seems like it should be non-racial. After all, Thetans don't have a skin color. But then I read Tony Ortega's blog post about how he supported the minority governments in South Africa and Rhodesia in the 50s and 60s, and the highly problematic statements he made about black Africans while in Southern Africa. Did Hubbard harbor prejudiced views, or was he simply pandering to the racists for support? L. Ron Hubbard was all about L. Ron Hubbard. He had very little room or time for anybody else in his head. And uh, I don't happen to think that he was specifically racist. I think L. Ron Hubbard's ist was that L. Ron Hubbard was an egotist. He was a megalomaniac. He was completely self-obsessed. And he he was kind of this malignant narcissist. He really, really didn't think about other people that much. And when he did, it was always in the degree of how they might serve him or be followers to him or how he might dominate and control them. And that was whites, blacks, reds, yellows, and everything else on the rainbow. That was L. Ron Hubbard. So his statements about black South Africans are consistent with the kind of statements he makes about everybody across the boards, right? Remember Hubbard also used the word wog, which is a gross racial slur in England. And I only repeat it to to say Hubbard was using this word very casually. He applied it to everybody, right? It didn't really matter what race he was talking about. He was an equal opportunity invalidator. He didn't validate anybody if they weren't up to what he thought of, of the standards for, you know, integrity, honesty, and superhuman drive and potential, right? But he always tempered it with this, you know, these public statements of compassion and tolerance and let's all get along and way to happiness and all this kind of crap. But Hubbard very, very, very much was about servicing himself. And he would step on anybody, anybody, even his wives and children, to get what he wanted. He didn't care about anyone else. And I used to think differently about him. I used to have a more... um, you know, moderate or a more compassionate view of L. Ron Hubbard, but studying the man and his life and his, and the, the chronology of his life, which is some research I've been doing lately, has made it all too clear, all too clear, that the recurring pattern of behavior in his life was one of taking advantage of others, no matter who it was and no matter what he had to do in order to get one over on them. And Hubbard's life was a constant pattern of a trail of broken friendships, broken relationships, classic, classic um, narcissistic uh, patterns of, of behavior in his life. So if you ask me if he was a racist too, I kind of go, mm, you know, I just don't think his hatred of other people and his and his inability to get along with other people or understand them was that narrow. You know, that it was focused only on people of another skin color or another skin type. I just think Hubbard was kind of uniformly awful to everybody. 
And uh, as far as his statements, yes, they were very pandering uh, to the black uh, or uh, about the blacks in South Africa to the government because Hubbard had a desire, a real strong desire to take power in South Africa, to get control of a country there, or at least a region where he would be the one in charge. Uh, politically, economically, he wanted that. He was chasing Cecil Rhodes' gold. L. Ron Hubbard thought, this is, this is just a little side note on this question, but just to give you guys what was, what was Hubbard doing in South Africa and Rhodesia, he was down there because he thought, he'd convinced himself that he was Cecil Rhodes in a past life and that he had buried gold that had been found down in Africa in Rhodesia and he was going to go down there and dig it up. And he and all of his efforts were in that direction. And then they kicked him out and he couldn't ever do the work of, of, of digging it up, finding it, whatever. Amongst all the other nonsensical things he was doing, he was that is a, a key thing of what he was doing down there. The other thing he was trying to do was he was trying to escape the consequences of his illegal acts in the United States and in the UK with tax invasion and other laws that he was evading. And he was looking for a safe port. He was looking for another place that Scientology could set up shop. And he thought that Africa might be that place. And it didn't turn out to be that way. He didn't get that warm reception he wanted. And within a year after getting kicked out of there, he had started the sea project and he went out on the ocean. And that was where he decided he would have the freedom that he needed to do what he needed to do. And then he started uh, immediately in the Sea Project in 1966-67, in those early days when it, when the whole thing was first getting going, he did Mission into Time where he went off, I think, the coast of Greece looking for buried treasure from a past life. This time not Cecil Rhodes, this time from when he was a prince of some uh, ancient uh, seafaring civilization, the Phoenicians. He thought he was a Phoenician. He had memories of, a, of being a Phoenician prince or something. And so this is all detailed in the book uh, Mission into Time, uh, which is a ridiculously nonsensical book. And of course, they didn't find any gold there either. So this is kind of what Hubbard was about and why I say he was really, at the end of the day, he was really just about himself. And he, and and. It's hard for those of us who have some empathy, compassion, idea of of inclusion in the human race, right? That we feel part of something bigger than ourselves. It's a little hard for us to get our wits around somebody as as self-absorbed as L. Ron Hubbard was. Uh, especially because he had the gift of gab. So Hubbard could talk a good talk. He could be the life of the party. He could be this very bigger than, you know, hearty, hail, you know, well, well met kind of guy. He could be that guy. And he could fool you. He could fool you for a good long time. And he did fool some people for a good long time in the early days of Scientology. Uh, there were people who hooked up with that and got on board and got into, into Hubbard's inner circle who um, it took him a couple years to figure out how, how wily and crafty and self-absorbed Hubbard was. So it's not obvious. This stuff is not always that obvious. We have the benefit in looking at L. Ron Hubbard of having the whole chronology of his life, of seeing the patterns in his existence. You know, when you meet somebody, you don't see any of that. And when you talk to them, you don't see any of that. And unless you can somehow map their life, 
you know, good luck finding it, right? So we 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 end up taking people at their word and taking them at face value and stuff like that. And everybody who did that and and got into L. Ron Hubbard's orbit ended up regretting it. Everyone, you know, except for of course his you know slavish Sea Org followers, right? Who are all brainwashed into thinking he's kind of some kind of god. So um, and even they, even even they, you know, like a Mike Rinder or a Marty Rathbun. Right. I mean, if you're looking for me, I mean, if you're looking for somebody who was the epitome of the slavish follower, any one of us would do. Right. We were fully, fully, fully committed. We thought L. Ron Hubbard was the best friend we ever had. So, uh, you know, so even then, uh, the truth can eventually get in there and and unhinge that nonsense. But um, but it can take a while. So. Uh, I hope that this was a better answer than what you were might, might've been looking for with this, right? Cause I really wanted to comment on Hubbard's character here. Um, and the fact that this question of racism has come up over and over again over the years, uh, at least in my orbit. And I just think it's sort of the wrong question. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the question. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't think that's what nails Hubbard. You know, he yes, he said racist things. He acted in a racist way. He he, you know, grew up in uh, early you know 1900s in the Midwest. He probably had all kinds of racist ideas, but I just don't think that was really his problem. I think the problem is much more fundamental than that. And I hope I got that across in this answer. Alex C, would it be a good idea to eliminate organized religion? assuming it were possible. I think not, because people need a crutch, but wanted to get your take. Alex, thank you for this question. And uh, it's an interesting one, because, of course, it's completely impossible to try to ban or get rid of organized religion, especially on a planet this big with billions of people, most of whom have deep-seated religious beliefs of one kind or another. And they have those, again, emotional needs right? Driving that belief and that necessity for those beliefs. It's see, religion, organized religion, the idea of community and getting together and having rules and dictates and rituals that we're all going to follow and we're all going to get along and do this thing. All kinds of emotional needs are being met there. It's not just one or two, right? They're almost all of them into one degree or another by the, either the religious belief, its practice, or the group and the, what the group provides to the individual and what the individual provides back to the group. So that is so basic to our needs and so fundamental to who and what we are as a species, this religious belief and this idea of needing answers for questions we just don't have the answers to, but needing those questions answered anyway, that's the role, that's the niche that religious belief and religious dogma fills. And then there is, of course, the community, right? The sense of community and belonging and ego that the community, that the religious communities feed. So um, so the idea that you'd get rid of those things, yeah, forget it. Right? There's no way. I mean, you could, you, could, you could burn all the Bibles, you could burn all the Qurans, you could burn all of Lao Tzu's work and Confucius's work and Buddha's work, burn it all, burn, send it all into the sun. It's gone tomorrow. Okay, let's say that happens. Two days from now, <laughs> the Church of the New Faith is going to start up. And 
you know, who knows what that new faith is going to be, but it's going to be something. It's going to be something. Right. Uh, you know, Ricky Gervais, I think it was, uh, said something famously about this or, or gave some analogy about this, you know, that you could burn all the books, all the science books, all the religious books, and 2,000 years from now come back around. Well, the science books are going to be just going to say the same things that they're saying now. Right? Or they're going to follow along that same line. We're going to find the same things, the, the algebra, the, the physics, the, the chemistry, the biology. All those things are going to get rediscovered, and we're going to lay them all out again. And they're still going to be just as true 2,000 years from now as they are now. All the religious texts could be completely different. They could be worshiping fish gods and... Um, and uh, light storms and uh, planets or something. I mean, who knows, right? You could devise completely different systems of religion. The thing you can be 100% sure of, 100% sure of, is that something's going to exist. <laughs> there will be some system, some religious dogma will exist because those science books that we evolve or re-evolve or come up with are never going to have all the answers that we need to fill those emotional needs that we have, right? Science just doesn't do it, doesn't do the trick. It does a lot, and in every day it's doing more and more in terms of clarifying things for us and making our lives simpler, easy, more efficient. All right, it, do, it does wonders at that, but where are we from? What are we doing here? What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life, right? One of those nine emotional needs, having meaning. That's religion, baby. Or philosophy, you could say. And philosophy and religion are, are you know, kind of bosom buddies. So, uh, so that's what I have to say about that is you could look at all of that, by the way, as a crutch. You could. Absolutely. It's a, it's a perfectly legitimate viewpoint. But you could also, but in the same way, you'd have to look at eating or sleeping as crutches. They're just things we have to do. They're things we have to have. And I mean as groups. I mean as, as a body, as a species. Uh, it, it, there are individual exceptions to every rule that exists. Every single one has some individual exception. Doesn't invalidate the rules, though. And the rules of this are pretty clear, right? And our emotional needs are what they are. So how you go about satisfying those needs could be a million and one different ways of doing it. Uh, but it tends to be, seems to be observably the case that human beings are going to dream up answers to questions they don't have and they're going to assign causation to things that they know they can't cause. Storms, right? Rain, thunder, lightning, drought, uh, the sun coming up, the sun going down. The moon coming up, the moon going down, the wind, right? These are tornadoes, uh, hurricanes. These are things we have zero control over. But we have to assume, because of the way we think and the way we are, we have to think that something is in charge of those things. Something is causing those things. And we will assign supernatural elements to be those causative agents lacking anything else, any other knowledge. And we do it automatically. We don't have to think about it. And we will then get so emotionally invested in these ideas that we will get into a place where we're willing to kill each other about it. 
So that's human beings, right? And that's, uh, and that's belief and that's religion. And, uh, and that's why we're never going to get rid of it. At least not in any kind of foreseeable future. Uh, it, we just not. So that's, that's my take. You know, it's my opinion. You asked and, uh, thanks for asking. All right. That is our show for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed the answers I gave. I hope they were illuminating in some fashion, helped cast some light on some things that might've been a little darker or grayer before. That is my only intention here. And, uh, you know, share my thoughts on stuff. So, uh, thank you very much for coming around and watching. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.